Turn your Bibles with me to Psalm chapter 1. If you are uh, new to the Bible, um, just open it up right in, in the center of the Bible. You're going to find the Psalms. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a couple in the back. Just raise your hand, and I think Dustin has one or two. He can, he can give you a Bible um, to use this morning. Psalm chapter 1, and we are looking at verse 4 today. And I'm going to read it, and then we are going to pray and ask God to open our eyes to his, his truth this morning. Psalm chapter 1, verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Let's pray. God, uh, we do ask that you open our eyes to the truth that is in this word. We, we do believe that it is indeed your truth and that you have uh, preserved this and given this truth to us. And so we ask that you move in our community this morning, in our midst, that uh, your spirit takes these words and uh, makes them come alive in our hearts. Uh, convict us where we need to be convicted. Uh, give us grace and mercy where we need grace and mercy, God. I ask that you are gentle with us this morning, um, but draw us to the face of Jesus Christ. Let us, let us see Jesus this morning, and it's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Yesterday, I uh, saw a man dying. was walking out of the grocery store in the parking lot with my daughters, uh, holding, hand, holding my hands, and uh, we were stopped in our tracks, and we stood there as the paramedics were pumping his chest uh, hopelessly. And um, it's in, it's in these, these moments that that we are reminded that life is indeed a vapor, that we are just like being drawn away. It's in these moments that we then turn to our kids and we just want to hold our kids and tell our wife that we love her because we realize that it's, you know, it's not, not very long for each one of us before we too are laid in the casket, our friends and family come to pay their respects, and they cry, they talk about hopefully what a good friend we were, they share stories about our life that make them laugh, they go home, they go back to work the next day, and they try to get along without us and deal with grief and loss. And uh, every, everything that we are on this earth is laid in the ground. And when we, when we have these moments in life and we, we begin to be reminded and see life as, as it is very quickly passing, And then we read verses like, uh, that use this imagery of chaff, which the wind just kind of drives away. It starts to make a lot of sense. The, the uh, past three weeks, we've been talking about the life that is 
deeply rooted in eternity. So roots that go beyond this world, roots that go beyond the heart attack in the parking lot, and that sink their claws into eternity, held by God himself. We're talking about these kind of roots and this kind of tree then that that blossoms out of this. So what we're doing, if if this is your first week with us, we have been going through Psalm chapter 1, the the very first psalm out of all the psalms. And each week we're just taking one verse and we're talking about what it means and what it it means for our lives. Uh, What we saw then for the last three verses or the last three weeks, what we saw is this description of what we can call the godly man, or the righteous man, or the happy man. Uh, The man who is rooted, like a tree. And today, we're we're, we're turning now, and we're looking at uh, the wicked man, who is like the chaff, which the wind drives away. Now, in the first three verses, uh, as we see, as we read, as we study this description of the happy man, what we find and what the Bible says is that there is no real happiness, no real meaning in life, no no real roots outside of the Bible itself. So outside of the truth that we find here in this book, there is no true happiness. Now we all want happiness. We've uh, We've already established that, right? We all want to be happy, joyful people. Yet there's no true, real everlasting, eternal happiness outside of the truth in this book. Yet so few people actually believe that. So few people, human beings, actually believe that. Why is that? As we get going this morning to help us dive in, I've got four four reasons for you why people do not believe the truth that we have been studying the last three weeks. Four reasons. One, because our flesh, our our, our flesh, our, our bodies, our flesh is sinful, and we always choose to, de- to delight in the flesh, or it's easier, I could say, to delight in the flesh. Meaning this, the flesh, all right, is, is here. Um, our, the desires of our flesh are, they're, they're there, they're easily attainable. The truth of the scriptures is sort of out there, and so it's actually then easier to submit to the desires of our flesh instead of submitting to the the word of God. Second point, uh, second reason, we do not want to submit to the scriptures. So because it's easier to submit to the desires of our flesh, whatever our flesh desires, we go after it. Since that's easier, we don't really want to submit to the scriptures. Because we find that submitting to the scriptures is actually hard work and can be very difficult. Third reason, we believe that culture is more important than scripture. Now, if you call yourself a Christian today, you you probably rarely admit that, that culture is more important to you than Scripture. But for so many of us, it's true. And what I mean by that is this. It is easier to rearrange culture, or I'm sorry, it's easier to rearrange Scripture to fit culture than it is to rearrange culture to fit scripture. It's easier to do that. So we're we're facing culture, we're facing life, and what culture deems as fine, as right, as correct, 
versus what Scripture deems fine, right, and correct. It's easier to rearrange the Scriptures and to start translating Scripture, interpreting Scripture through the lens of culture and making Scripture fit culture than it is to make culture rearrange that to fit Scripture. Fourth reason we don't believe this is true, that there's happiness found in the pages of, of, this, of the Bible. Fourth reason is this. Often we discover that aligning ourselves with scriptures will cost us. Aligning our hearts, aligning our actions, aligning our behavior with what we find in the scriptures will cost us dearly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you, if you don't know anything about Dietrich's life, you've got to read Bonhoeffer, the biography written by Eric Metaxas. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote about this and he lived it. The cost of discipleship is very costly. The call of Jesus on an individual's life always demands his entire life. It costs his entire life. Meaning this, salvation is completely free and all it takes from you is everything that you are. Everything that you, it's, it's very costly. And many of us are not willing to pay that cost. Many of us, we, we, we want to kind of play the fence. We want to be on both teams, and we just can't do that. To be on Jesus' team requires every bit of your athletic ability. Metaphorically speaking. Some of you are like, I don't have any athletic ability. So, for these reasons, we don't want to believe that the first three verses of Psalm 1 are actually true, and we, and we choose to not believe it. If you don't believe that the first three verses of Psalm 1 are true, meaning that uh, it's best to drink the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's best to be rooted in the gospel, it's best, it's, we delight in the scriptures. If we find ourselves saying, no, I, that's not me, I'm not part of that, I'm not in that category of people, Remember, there are only two ways to live according to the Bible. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. There's the way of the godly and there's the way of the ungodly. There's only two ways. And so if, if, if then you, you don't find yourself in the categories of, or the category of the first three verses right here, then you're part of the second group. And that's who we're talking about today. So we've talked about the righteous We've described the righteous, we've described the happy person. Today and next week, we're going to look at the wicked. Today, we're going to look at who the wicked are. We're going to look at what the wicked do and are like. And then next week, we're going to look at the fate of the wicked. So all three of you are going to really like that sermon, right? You don't grow a church by talking about the fate of the wicked. But you grow healthy, godly people through talking about the fate of the wicked, all right? So that's where we're going next week. And by God's grace, I think we can grow a church in the process. All right, so let's dive into it. Who are the wicked? Look at it, verse, verse four. The wicked, it says, are not so. The wicked are not so. Now, in the Hebrew, the original language here, that's, that literally reads, not so are the wicked. So the, the negative actually comes first. What it's saying is essentially this. Look at the first three verses in your Bible. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 1. That's the description of the righteous man. Not so are the wicked. So, so 
who is the righteous man? Here he is. This is the happy man, the godly man. He's someone who doesn't listen to the counsel of ungodly people. He's someone who doesn't stand in the place of sinners. He doesn't sit and linger and try to find happiness and joy where sinners find joy. He, he doesn't uh, sit in the seat of the mockers and the scorners. But this is what he does do. He delights. The godly man actually delights in the Bible. He actually, he's happy there. He's happy submitting to the truth that he finds in the scripture. And then what's the, God, the godly man like? He's like this tree that grows, that's strong and beautiful and fruit-bearing. Not so are the wicked, the psalmist says. So you could essentially then draw a box around the first three verses of Psalm 1, and you could write in the margin, the wicked are opposite all of this, and draw an arrow to it. So you could, you could just reverse everything that the first three verses say as a descriptor for the righteous person. You can reverse all of that, and what you find is the description of the, the wicked or the ungodly. So let's do that. The wicked man then, verse 1, uh, he does walk in the way of the ungodly. He does listen to the advice of the ungodly. He does uh, stand in the place of sinners. He does hang out and, and, and seek to find joy and happiness in the place that sinners find joy and happiness. He does sit in the seat of the mockers and joins the mocking. There's nothing sacred in life, nothing holy. Mocks, mocks God, mocks everything. Uh, what, what he's not like then, if, if, if the uh, righteous person, if the godly man delights in the scriptures, that's where his delight is. The, wicked's, the wicked does not delight in the scriptures. The wicked finds the scriptures repulsive or archaic or, or boring. And then the, here's the godly man like this tree, this beautiful green fruit-bearing tree with strong roots, this, this massive amount of weight, yet perfect balanced symmetry. If that's the picture of the godly man, then what is the picture of the wicked? Now, before we get into the picture of the wicked, let's do this. Some of you are um, already thinking to yourself, now hold up, I don't like this word wicked. Wicked seems too harsh. Are you saying that everybody that is outside of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is wicked? Seems like a harsh word. I mean, I know witches are wicked. And then someone else says, not all witches are wicked. There's good witches too. No, all witches are wicked, all right? I know rapists are wicked. I know murderers are wicked. But the average person... Like, humanity as a whole, you're saying, is wicked? Doesn't make any sense. Now, the, the reason, I've, uh, two, I've got two reasons. I've got reasons all over the place today, right? I've got two reasons. Two reasons that you do not believe humanity as a whole is generally wicked, all right? Two reasons why you think uh, the nature of humanity is generally good, uh, why you think humanity is a whole lot cuter than it actually is. Two reasons. Number one, it's because you are looking at public actions, not the heart. You're looking at public actions, not the heart. Now, th think about this. Imagine with me for a moment. Uh, 
let's take society and remove from society law. Remove from society uh, any kind of government, governmental structure that, that sort of prohibits certain behaviors. We remove from society social guilt. Remove from society accountability. And what do you find? Why, uh, did you guys ever watch post-apocalyptic movies? All right, that, that's what you find, all right? I mean, why do we love post-apocalyptic movies where, like, the government has been demolished and there's just, there's no sense of morality anymore. There's no sense of accountability anymore. Nobody cares about each other anymore. Everybody's just for themselves. And, and what happens in these post-apocalyptic movies? Looting, shooting, whatever. I mean, you name it. It is chaos, Right? We love those movies because they tell us what we already instinctively know to be true. And that is this. The human heart is so dark that if we remove consequences, if, we're, if, we, if we were to lift the law, if we were to lift societal guilt, if we were to lift accountability from one another, and, and everybody just like did what their heart desired, it wouldn't look very pretty. We, we already know that to be true. The human heart is very dark. I, I, wonder, I wonder what your life would look like if there were no consequences to any actions. If you could just simply do whatever your heart desired. What would you do? Let's, let's think about, th about this in the context of history. Any history fans out there? History, history. I like history, but I'm, I'm not a historian by any means. But I read historians, so I can tell you what I read. Um, there, for almost a, a, a one thousand year period. Everybody say a thousand years. All right, and we're not talking about like eschatology right now. Like two of you got that joke. The two of you that grew up in pre-millennial, pre-tribulation churches. <laughs> and if you didn't. Anyway, we'll talk about eschatology another day, all right? Some of you are like, what's eschatology? What kind of church did I walk into? For a thousand years, all right? So from 400 B.C., everybody say 400 B.C., through about 400 A.D., or 300 A.D., for almost a thousand years, um, of, re of recorded history, Sex was, was rampant. Like, if you had a friend, they were somebody that you had sex with. Like, you just, that was how you related to people. That was how you began a relationship with someone, was through having sex with that person. Um, pederasty, or child molestation, was socially acceptable and flourished. Most men, by the, Roman, by the time the Roman Empire was sort of booming, most adult men had child boys as sex slaves. Now, they were also married, all right? However, by the time the Roman Empire was flourishing, there was a severe uh, drop in the birth rate. Why? Because men were, with little boys, 
not with their wives, which prohibits baby making, and it seriously caused concern, like we're going to lose our population. These guys aren't, they're, they're not making babies anymore. And these wives, who would be seen as property of many of these men, these, these, these wives would, in their loneliness, often turn to one another and indulge in lesbianism. Now at the same time, uh, female prostitution flourished. It was a lucrative business. Um, at the same time, death was becoming a sport. Now this is just like a, a thousand year, this is just like one little glimpse of history, all right? This is one little picture of a historical time period. And what we don't realize today is in many ways, that's the way humanity has always been. I am sorry. Right in the middle of like this awesome point, too. Hold that thought. Let me just, let me just get him. <laughs> Jess, can you hold this one for me? Um, <laughs> turn it off. So you might say, okay, what happened? How did we go from that to where we're at today? Because you can look at culture today and say, well, we're much more tame than we were back then. What happened? The historian Ray Tenahill, secular historian, she explains um, that uh, in the fourth century, so the 300s, Christianity exploded, right? And when Christianity exploded until about 1000 AD, so from 300 AD to about 1000 AD, when Christianity exploded, she said it, it dramatically altered culture. Um, to such a degree, and I, and I quote, its effect on culture was so paralyzing, she says, that it is just now beginning to relax. Now what she's saying is this, Christian morality became synonymous with law. So when Christianity exploded, all of this, the previous uh, indulgences of humanity were sort of like muffled and were tamed. And they said, no, we're going to start following what the Bible says. And, and then they actually would try to put that into law. So Christian morality all right, became synonymous in a lot of ways with law. So what she's saying then is that, is that Christianity essentially leavened culture for a long period of history. And what, but what she's also saying as a secular historian is that we're just now seeing that begin to relax. We're just now seeing that begin to change. Now, the, po the point is this. I'm not getting into culture wars this morning. The point is this. If government accountability guards actions, for many years, government accountability became synonymous with what seemed to be true in the scriptures, moral, the moral call in the scriptures. Um, so accountability guards actions. The law protects you from other people. Social guilt and social pressures restricts behavior. The point is this, if all of that were to lift, if all of this were to just lift, and there was, there was no more consequences for action, there, were, there was no more social guilt and social pressure to do the right thing and to act in the right way. I wonder what you would do. I wonder what our society would look like then. 
if there were no consequences, if you could get away with absolutely anything, I wonder what you would do. I wonder what, I wonder what are your hidden fantasies. Those secrets, man, if I could do this. I never will because <laughs> I'm not going to spend the rest of my life in jail. But if I could, Jesus himself in the book of Matthew, he, he has this very famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus himself said that we have to stop focusing on actions alone. Because see, actions alone, if we just look at actions, so if, if I say you're a sinner and you start thinking of the actions that you've committed, and that's how you're going to judge how much of a sinner you are, Jesus says that's not enough. Because why are you refraining from certain actions? It's because of consequences. It's because you'll get in trouble. Looking at actions is not, a, not enough, Jesus said. He, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually said this. He said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, whoever hates his brother or calls him raka or you fool or who, he says you've committed the same sin as the person who murders. So that means this, every one of us in this room has committed the same sin that anyone who's locked up for murder has committed. Now consequences are different, I'll give you that. But as far as the sin that leads you to murder, we've all committed that same sin. We've hated someone. We've wished someone did not, did not exist. We've wished someone out of our life, maybe violently in our own imagination. Jesus also said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, he says, has already committed adultery in his heart. What's he saying? He's saying that every one of us sitting in this room has committed the same sin as any adulterer out there. Now again, consequences are different. But we're not talking about consequences this morning. We're talking about the depravity and the wickedness of the human heart. What is the sin that leads you to commit adultery? It's wanting something that's not yours. Have we not all committed that sin? Have we not all wanted something and lusted after something that is not ours. You see, Jesus wasn't looking at actions. Jesus looked straight to the heart. And when we look to the heart, what we see is what? The heart is pretty wicked. Humanity is pretty wicked. You don't know the wickedness of humanity because you're only looking at actions, often just bridled by consequences. You're not looking at the heart. But when we look at the heart, what do we see? The prophet Jeremiah, he looked at the heart, and you know what he saw? He said, oh, the heart is deceitfully, or the, the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately, what's the word he uses? Anybody know? Wicked. When we take our eyes off of just simply actions alone and we begin to look at the heart of humanity, what we find is that the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked.
So take your eyes off of actions, and this morning what we're doing is we're looking at the heart. Second reason that you think humanity is generally good and not generally wicked is because you don't know the sinfulness of sin. You really don't. You don't understand how sinful sin actually is. Uh, the Puritan theologian Ralph Venning, he said this. He said, God is holy without spot or blemish or any such thing, without any wrinkle or anything like it, as, they also, uh, as, as also they are who are in Christ shall one day be. He is so holy that he cannot sin himself. On the contrary, he says, as God is holy, all holy, only holy, altogether holy, and always holy, sin is sinful, all sinful, only sinful, and altogether sinful, and always sinful. In my flesh, he says, there dwelleth no good thing, and in God there is no evil. So in sin, there is no good. God is the chiefest of goods, and sin is the chiefest of evils. And no, and no good can be compared with God for goodness. So no evil can be compared with sin for evil. What he's saying is this, is you don't know the sinfulness of sin. You don't know how, how bad sin really is because you don't understand the holiness of God. You don't know the sinfulness of sin because you don't understand the holiness of God. To you, sin is just merely a minor screw-up. It's a blip in your cuteness. But to a, a, a God who is all holy, only holy, sin is sinful, all sinful, and only sinful. It's disgusting. It, it's offensive. The stench of it is offensive to his holiness. It's like a roadkill on a 100 degree day being eaten by maggots served to him on a platter. It's offensive. The reason we don't understand that humanity is wicked is because we don't understand the sinfulness of sin. And when we don't understand the sinfulness of sin, then redemption is not that great. Grace is, is, is not mighty. Salvation itself has, has lost its splendor and its sweetness. And the work of Christ on the cross is then just simply diminished to something other than a powerful message of a spotless lamb who took on your stench and paid the price. So when we read the word wicked here in Psalm 1, we know what he's talking about. We know that psalmist is understand he's, he's, he's looking at the heart and he sees that humanity outside of Christ is wicked. And he says the wicked then. Here's the happy man, the righteous man. He says the wicked are not so. But what are they like? If, if the righteous man is like this beautiful, green, fruit-bearing, strong tree, what are the wicked like? Let's read it. The wicked are not so, but are like the, everybody say the word, chaff that the wind drives away. Now, for those of us who are living in Baltimore City and not farmers, raise your hand. All right, 
That's ever, almost, did some, some of you didn't raise your hand. I'm an urban farmer. I've got five pots that I grow herbs in. Uh, most of us need to know what chaff is, all right? Uh, chaff is this protective outer coating of a grain of wheat. Or uh, something a little more culturally understandable for me, corn on the cob, all right? You get corn on the cob, what do you do? You shuck it. Do you guys know that's called shucking? If you didn't know that, you, didn't, you need to know shucking. You shuck the corn on the cob. You know what you got left? You got corn, and what's the green stuff? It's chaff. It's, that's, that's essentially chaff. And what do you do with it? What's it good for? I asked my daughters this yesterday. What's it good for? One of them said, uh, we, we make a salad out of it. <laughs> no, we don't, we don't pour ranch dressing on it and some croutons and chow down. And then the other one said, it's good for the trash. And I was like, brilliant. That's, I'm going to put that into my message tomorrow. What's it good for? It's, it's good for the trash. So, uh, so in the ancient world, um, where wheat was a pretty hot commodity, and the farmers would harvest their wheat, what they would be left with is this, this seemingly like inseparable mixture of chaff and wheat. Now, how do you separate the two? How do you separate the chaff and the wheat? Well, what they would do, and, and if you're uh, familiar with the Middle Eastern or an Eastern culture, even still today in some parts of the world, uh, they still do this. How they would separate it is they would take a shovel, they would kind of shovel into the, to the wheat, and they would throw it up into the air on a windy day, and lucky for the farmer, the wheat actually weighed more than the chaff. And so as it goes up into the air, the wheat would fall to the ground, and the chaff would drift away, be blown away by the wind. And after they would do this for a while, I don't know how long, never done it, you would end up uh, essentially with this pile of uh, wheat right here, and um, chaff scattered elsewhere. Then they would literally sweep them, they would sweep up the chaff, and they would burn it. They would get rid of it. Why? You don't want to make a salad out of it. You don't want chaff in your oatmeal. Chaff is worthless. It's rootless. It's, it's weightless. It's fit for the trash. It's fit for the fire. The farmer doesn't want chaff in his wheat. He just wants to separate the two. This is the picture of the wicked. This is the picture of humanity without Christ. Thrown up and like chaff, which the wind just simply carries off and drives away and swept up later and burned. The tragedy, the tragedy of, of the wicked is that they, they, they have no form. They, they're, they're, they are shapeless. Um, they're always changing based on fads and popularity, based on what's comfortable, based on what feels right, based on what feels like it might give happiness or joy. The tragedy of the wicked is that they have no roots they're not grounded in it. Their, their, their teeth aren't sunk into eternity. They have no weight. And there are thousands like this 
in Baltimore City today. It's the wife who this morning is sitting quietly in her home wondering where her husband spent the night last night. It's the man who has no other motivating factor in his life other than money and whether a hustler or a business exec, it's the same thing. He'll do whatever he can do, whatever it takes, whoever he has to walk over in order to get it. It's the student who moved to the city from rural America and their, their lives now are filled. They, they, they've, they've been swept away by the currents of the city and their lives are filled with, with, with fashion and with fads and with late night parties filled with drunkenness and trying out cocaine and hookups. It's the dads in the city who find that it's uh, very easy to get a girl pregnant and very hard to be a father. And they are swept away from their children by the winds of their own desires. Am I covering the sins of the city? Am I covering the wickedness of the human heart? We're just like barely scraping the surface. I mean, multiply that times the, the lustful intentions of your heart that are never, never carried out. Multiply that times the many idols, often good things that we build up and, and, and place in front of God in the seat that only God should sit. Only then are we beginning to scratch the surface of the wickedness and the darkness and the depravity of man's heart. The wicked, the psalmist says, are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind just simply drives away. Now, no one wants to be chaff. I mean, no one would walk out of here and be like, that's what I want to do. I'm going to be like the chaff. <laughs> I don't want to be like that tree. Nobody wants to be chaff. Nobody wants to be rootless and weightless and worthless and fruitless. I mean, doesn't everybody want to be rooted in something and to be useful in life and to be fruit-bearing in life and to be beautiful and, and, and maybe to have roots set into eternity that, that create a significance that goes beyond the heart attack in the parking lot of the grocery store? I mean, isn't that what we all want in life? So how do we get it? Where do we find it? I mean, we don't find it in pop psychology because you've tried that, right? Like we've, all right, I'm going to just tell myself I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be a better person. I'm going I'm to tell myself to be happy, and then I'll be happy. I heard, I heard a pastor say that. Just tell yourself to be happy. I won't say his name, but he's on TV a lot, all right? <laughs> you might know him someone. Um, just tell yourself to be happy, and you'll be happy. What? What is that? Seriously? Like, I've tried, okay, I'm like, pit of despair, world's caving in around me, like all I've done for the last 24 hours is cry. Then I hear this message, just tell yourself to be happy. Oh, Joel, be happy. What? <laughs> it worked. Pop psychology, it's amazing. No, it doesn't work, all right? It doesn't really, I mean, it might work temporarily. 
and it might sell a lot of books, but it doesn't, it doesn't do anything for what we really all know to be true, that there is some serious work to be done that we can't seem to do anything about. So then we try to be a more moral person. Maybe if I do better, maybe if I stop doing the stuff that I've been doing. Look, you can become the most moral person on the face of the planet. And at the end of your life, be like chaff, which the wind just simply drives away. And for those of you who have been striving for morality, like you want to be significant, you want to, you want to be happy, and so you're taking the moral road. And maybe that's why you're even here today, is because you know that you're supposed to go to church. So I'm going to show up on Sundays. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going I'm to stop this, and I'm going to start this. I'm going to do the moral thing. And then maybe I'll deal with the crap that's in here. And so you're here and you're doing it. And what you're finding is that there's just like this work that needs to be done that you can't do anything about. You might find yourself relating to Thabiti Anyabwile, who once converted to Islam, striving for happiness, striving for joy, striving for fulfillment, to do something about what he felt in here. So he became, according to his own story, he became the best Muslim he could possibly be. And he, was, he became, the, what, in, according to his own words, the most moral person he knew. Uh, he didn't know anybody more moral than himself. He was a good husband, a good father. He prayed multiple times a day. But the wickedness of his heart stung when he was hanging out with some friends and one of his friends said, that there is, if anybody, she said, if anybody is righteous, it's Thabiti. And he said that stung because he knew that that wasn't the case. But it hurt because he couldn't be any more moral than he was already being. So I've like reached the end of my morality and I'm still wicked on the inside. I still know that I have a heart that's full of sin and darkness. What do I do about that? And at that moment, what Thabiti then found in Jesus is what I hope you will find in Jesus today. And that is this. There is more forgiveness in Jesus than all of the darkness and the wickedness in your heart. One theologian put it this way. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Think about that. What Thabiti found in Christ, what I hope you find in Christ, is that very truth. What, what happened on that, that cross when Jesus died, the tree that he hung on, was that Jesus submitted himself to the winds of the punishment that should have been ours. And the winds came and swept him away. Jesus became rootless then so that we might have roots. He became weightless so that we might have weight. Jesus became chaff through hanging on the tree so that we might grow as trees. You see, through the death of Jesus Christ, God forgave the wickedness of the human heart. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Everybody say amen to that. 
when your eyes then are, are, are opened to the wickedness of our hearts, when, when your eyes are opened to the sin of your hearts, what you find is not despair. I mean, this is the, this is the crazy irony of the gospel that when we finally fall on our knees and admit that we are depraved and broken and desperately wicked, it does not lead to despair. Why? Because when, when, when our eyes are open to our darkness, when our eyes are open to our sin and our depravity and our wickedness, then salvation, the message of salvation becomes that much sweeter. Redemption becomes that much greater of a message. Grace becomes that, mu- that much uh, more life-changing. Forgive the bad English right there. Right? Grace becomes incredibly mighty. And Jesus incredibly sweet. I wonder this morning if, if God has opened your eyes to your own darkness in your hearts. You see, the, the, the difference between um, chaff and trees, the difference between the wicked and the godly is not that, that one sins more than the other. It's not that one has, sins less than the other. The difference between the godly and the wicked, between the trees and the chaff, is that one has been forgiven of their sins. And friends, for those of you who are, who, who are forgiven of your sins, for those of you who have trusted in Christ as your Savior, take heart this morning. Take heart this morning. There is no guilt for those who are in Christ. And for those of you who are chaff, will you believe that Jesus became chaff so that you, be, you could become a tree? Will you believe that Jesus took the punishment, took the, the wind of God's wrath on your behalf so that you could become a tree? Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, we are full aware of uh, the wickedness of our own hearts. And God, we thank you for the fact that you have forgiven sinners. That you don't call us to just simply on our own try to become a more moral person or a better person. But rather, you have done the work for us on our behalf. And God, this morning, uh, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, as well as uh, those uh, in the room right now who you're just opening, uh, you're just opening their eyes and they're just now coming to, to understand the sweetness of the gospel, God, we thank you for forgiveness. I thank you for the fact that your acceptance of me, even still today as a believer for many years, that your acceptance of me still today is not based on what I do or don't do but it's still based on grace. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the fact that Jesus became chaff so that we could become trees. God, let us cling to that. Let us embrace the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.